0: Welcome to The Free Ranger, a podcast about telling the stories that matter. On this podcast, we'll be learning about storytelling from the people who turn important issues into stories. The writers, filmmakers, marketers, academics, and other professionals who weave together the facts to create compelling narratives that make a difference. This season, we'll be speaking with experts on Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist who developed the concept of Archetypes. Archetypes are patterns that pop up again and again in the stories of a given culture. In recent years, books like Margaret Mark and Carol S. Pearson's The Hero and the Outlaw have popularized the idea that brands can use archetypes in their own marketing materials. At the same time, Jung and his work have come under scrutiny, as critics have wrestled with the racism and sexism evident in his writings. Now more than ever, It's important for us to know the man behind the concept, both his accomplishments and his shortcomings. We are happy to welcome Jungian analyst, psychoanalyst, and writer, Dr. Andrew Samuels. Dr. Samuels is the author of Jung and the Post-Jungians, a collection of essays exploring how today's psychoanalysts are grappling with Jung's legacy. Together, we talked about Jungian analysis, the dangers of essentialism, and the importance of difference in and out of therapy. We are here on the Free Ranger podcast with Dr. Andrew Samuels. Dr. Samuels, thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: I appreciate the invitation.
0: I'm glad to have you to get us started. What is a Jungian analyst and why did you decide to become one?
1: I became a Jungian analyst mostly via a chapter of accidents. In truth, they were the only school of psychotherapy in London at that time who would look at such a young man. I was 21 years old. And this is funny because Jungian psychology is often associated with issues of old age, as if old age implies wisdom. I Let me assure you, as a man who is now in his mid-70s, it definitely does not imply wisdom.
0: You wrote a book called Jung and the Post-Jungians. Who are the Post-Jungians?
1: Well, they are everyone except for Jung and perhaps two or three very close associates of Jung. One of the problems for Jung, actually, in the world is that everybody behaves as if nothing happened after him. It's frozen in time. So when people, for example, want to use psychological types or ideas about archetypes, they go to what they rightly consider to be the source, but things have moved on. I sometimes envy the field of psychoanalysis, where it's absolutely clear that Freud did not have the last word, that people have come generation after generation. Before I did my work, it was as if all of us who were post-Jungian we're all over the place, no coherence, no organization, no recognition. And so I wrote a book, which I now consider absolutely my most boring book ever, <laughs> which, which put all these post-Jungians into schools. And I think that was both a service to the field, but also a highly controversial and provocative thing to do, because one of the many myths in the sense of untruths about Jungian psychology is just individuals doing their own thing. It's not. It's possible to understand the different approaches. And that's what my book was about. It was a young man's book again. And as I say, for me, it's pretty boring stuff.
0: You mentioned this difference between Jung, a handful of the people originally around him, and so many of the people who have come after why do some analysts feel the need to distance themselves from Jung in the decades after his uh, his life and his passing?
1: I would actually say that a better question from you to me would be, why do some analysts fail to distance themselves from Jung? I mean, it's absolutely clear, it's obvious, that people who do not identify as Jungian analysts, who are very aware of Jung's Racial attitudes, his anti-Semitism, his elitism, and so forth. It's absolutely clear that the Western Academy, the woke world, if you like, (laughs) won't have much to do with Jung. But what I don't understand still is why so many people follow him slavishly, as if he were uh, a messiah or some kind of absolutely... Reliable indicator of what's important in life. I don't think that's sensible.
0: You mentioned a couple of things. Uh, What are some of the controversies that have come up in relation to Jung and to his work?
1: Well, I'm going to list the obvious ones in a moment, but what I want to put at the top of the list is people don't realize that he was a very good therapist and he taught therapy a few things. For example, about the way that the therapist and the client might relate, about how to link things that are on the surface with things that are in the depths of the psyche, how to respect the oddities and idiosyncrasies of the client. Jung, I don't think, tried to make people conform. And in this sense, I think he's very special. So the first thing that I think is highly controversial to say is he is one hell of a good therapist. Was he anti-Semitic? Yes. Was he racist? Yes. As you yourself have written, he operated a hierarchy of racial categories and many of the things that he said about African people are, well, they're offensive, but they're also stupid. And I think it's a great pity that it's taken such a long time for the post-Jungians to catch up with the anti-Semitism and with the racism. But, you know, in my work, I'm not really that fussed that Jung said and did stupid things. They're worse than stupid, some of them. They're quite reprehensible. But what are the succeeding generations of Jungian analysts and thinkers doing? Well, for a long time, they did nothing about this. They just accepted it they believed what they were told by members of that original, very small coterie. Of course, he's not a race. Of course, he's not an antismic, just a man of his times. So I spent a great deal of energy disputing the notion that Jung was just a man of his times. There were alternative pathways of thinking and behaving open to him. And to deny this is actually a problem for the post-Jungians. So really, And you're going to find this throughout our talk. I want to keep pushing it away from Jung. Because at the core of where I stand is that if you're going to stay only within the body of Jung, is that psychotherapy? Is that psychology? Or is it, to use a most regrettable word that has been attached to Jung, is it a kind of cult-following behavior? I'm not saying ditch Jung what I'm saying is get critical about Jung and move on and see that the problems are with us. The problem of whiteness is with us. The problem of an overreaction to the charge of anti-Semitism is very prominent in in the world today because people in the Jungian world are frightened of, for example, being critical of Israel because they fear They're going to be accused of anti-Semitism, same old, same old. So there are really serious consequences of not fully addressing this idea that he was just a man of his time.
0: In chapter 12 of your book, The Political Psyche, you wrote, I suggest that renewal will not occur until Jungians resolve their work of mourning for Jung. Only when Jung, the man, the flawed and hence overanalyzed leader, has been mourned, Can anything be learned from Jung, the social and cultural phenomenon? I found that choice of word very interesting. Why do Jungians need to mourn for Jung? And what do you think lies on the other side of that mourning?
1: Okay, like so much of my work, I steal from Freudian psychoanalysis. And somebody, and I actually can't remember who, wrote a paper about Freud as a lost object of psychoanalysis that has never been properly mourned hasn't been let go. I think, actually, as time has passed, they have let Freud go. Mourning, and it is Freud's theory here, means letting go. You see, when people start to talk about, just to take one example, anti-Semitism, and they want to connect it to Jung, they immediately start looking in Jung's psychology, in his upbringing, in his inner world of dreams and fantasies, and, and, and so on. This is a cul-de-sac, a road that goes absolutely nowhere. You have to move on. Of course, as a Jew, I understand very well, I'm not going to talk about anti-Semitism now, by the way, I'm going to talk about one's relation to the departed. They do live in the mind, but they don't live in the mind as if they are alive. You have to move on. And so that I think that makes me both of interest in the Jungian world and a bit of a problem, because most of the Jungians I know, sadly, still don't want to move on.
0: Speaking of that book, The Political Psyche, you worked on that from 1987 to 1993. Part of this book is an analysis of the complicated question of Jung and anti-Semitism. What was that process like for you, the process of researching this book and putting it together?
1: The biggest problem I had was not being appropriated by people who have long track records in dissing Jung and Jungian analysis. I wasn't prepared to let people with knee-jerk hostility to Jung take me over. That was quite difficult. But I also had the opposite problem because I wanted to stay a Jungian analyst. I like Jungian people. I like post-Jungian people. It suits me very well. But was I becoming the evil son? You know, the one who says, uh, why are we doing all this? It's all a load of shit. You know, this, this kind of thing. So steering a path between becoming just a critic and also not getting myself kicked out has been emotionally very difficult. Of course, as time passed, I became more and more celebrated for having raised these matters. That's why I'm here, right? It's a joke, isn't it? At first, it was a very difficult path to follow. And now it may be suspiciously easy to be the political Jungian, to be the dissident Jungian, to be the Jungian who made his reputation not just being post-Jung, but sometimes anti-Jung. I mean, I'm old enough to laugh at what happens in the course of a lifetime.
0: In both Jung and the post-Jungians and the political psyche, you caution against what you call essentialism, uh, roughly making claims about what a given thing is rather than what it is like. Why is this important in the context of Jungian analysis?
1: Well, it's important in general as well. Everybody knows the battle feminist thinkers have had to establish that there are no precise definitions of Males and females. And indeed, these days, when we talk about a multiplicity of genders, this becomes ever more important. What I'm really against with regard to essentialism is the method used to comprise and compose definitions. Imagine two columns on a piece of paper. The left hand column, because that's where we start reading in our language structure, is the master column. And that's a very apt choice of word. That's where you will list, for example, all the conventional attributes of the man, of maleness. And in the right-hand column, you will list all the conventional attributes and cliches about the alleged opposite, femaleness. Naturally, the word opposite becomes absolutely fundamental to this. If a man is a rational being, what is a female? bound to be irrational, right? It just fits. It's a kind of columnar way of thinking, thinking in columns. And that's at the heart of essentialism. Jung is full of this. Whether he's talking about the differences between man and woman, or German and Jew, or Europe and non-European culture, he's always dividing it into these columns. And that is so truncating of the infinite possibilities of spectrums of behavior, spectrums of possibilities. So that's what I'm trying to do when I critique essentialism. And by the way, I'm not, for goodness sake, I didn't invent the word essentialism. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been around in feminist thinking since the 1940s.
0: On a related note, you write in several places about the need for a psychology of difference. Uh, how do you define difference and Why is it particularly important?
1: Well, of course, we're talking about material that I wrote 20 years ago and and more, and forgive me for saying this, but I was a little bit ahead. I mean, nowadays, everyone's talking about difference. Everyone's talking about the other, everyone's talking about inclusivity and so forth. So when I began, I didn't have the benefit of the sophisticated thinking that we now have. What I meant to say was that although Jung made colossal errors, not errors, not only errors of thinking, but also errors of judgment, he was trying to probe how groups of people differ from one another psychologically. Now this may seem very strange because everyone knows him as the author of archetypes, which means people have everything in common, lots of things in common, but actually he was also, and I think more interestingly, Expressing an attempt to see how different groups of people, with their different histories and experiences, these different subject positions produce a different kind of psychology. Now, of course, the brain merchants don't like this. <laughs> but they have a point because what they say about the universality of brain structures and dynamics is obviously true. But I'm not coming at this from a scientific point of view. I'm not a neuropsychoanalyst. I'm coming from this from a human and experiential point of view the problem for psychotherapists is acute because we have to work with people even if they look like ourselves and increasingly they don't who are in fact different but there isn't much psychological thinking about how you how you approach difference i had someone in supervision an english woman who was consulted by a turkish client and so She started to read everything she could find, usually on the internet, which um, is a big problem here. (laughs) about Turkey, Turkish history, Turkish culture, Turkish mores, the role of women in Turkish society, as if this was how you approach a different person. She didn't ask the client much. She knew she had researched the client and I think expected the client to be grateful. I mean, it's a bit like an anthropologist or um, an explorer arriving in a remote and exotic place, at least exotic to the explorer, and just knowing ahead of time what there is going to be and not really listening. It's a battle within anthropology to actually listen to people. So a psychology of difference would respect these aspects of human experience that lead to a different kind of collective emotional functioning. And I'm glad some way into our talk that I've used the word emotional because emotions are another one of those areas where everybody thinks you can list the seven universal emotions. Now, that's a load of fucking rubbish. List anything universal. The thing about emotions is that they differ, but there isn't much theorizing about it in the clinical world, and I'd like to see that change.
0: So you've mentioned just a moment ago one thing that you would like to see in the future of clinical psychology analysis etc uh what's research are you working on at the moment that makes you most excited uh, something that's happening in the coming months and years
1: my reply will seem odd i'm particularly interested in how people defend themselves against hostility and accusation the raw material for this has been my analysis of the various defences of Jung's racist ideas and his use of the racial hierarchy. So I started to look, I'm not going to try to list them, but this is something that's very interesting. I'm looking at the way in which members of my community have defended themselves against attacks. I'm not interested in defending against attacks. I'm interested in understanding how people defend against attacks. Now, that's a microcosm of a problem in the larger geopolitical world, which is the paucity of thinking about what threatens people. Now, if you think about the Ukraine situation, and what I'm going to say may well be unpopular in allegedly liberal circles, but I don't care, it's been very difficult to get what a few academics and journalists have noted about how Russia saw itself defending against attacks into a proper, sensible discussion. This doesn't justify what Russia did. I am not an anti-humanitarian person. The opposite, actually. I weep to see so much bloodshed, and I am desperate for some kind of coherent plan to end the war in Ukraine to emerge. But at the same time, What I'm talking about in relation to Jungians defending themselves against attacks of Jung's racism is also relevant to how Russians, Russia, elements in Russia, not all of Russia, felt they needed to defend themselves. Where does this come from? Actually, this comes from psychoanalysis. It's really very interesting to see what people push back against, to see what they consider undermines their position and their interests, rather than generating attacks on other people or criticisms of other people. I think it's a kind of clinically derived form of political commentary.
0: So I asked earlier why you decided to become a Jungian analyst in the first place. A follow-up question to that. What has led you to stay a Jungian analyst throughout the decades, even in the face of controversies, even in the face of disagreements with the field, with the wider world, what keeps you here? First
1: of all, clinical excellence. You have the rigor of psychoanalysis, and you have enough of the hippy-dippy, occult, weirdo, out-of-left-field stuff, because I think therapy needs the out-of-left-field stuff. It needs synchronicity, the psychoid unconscious. It needs people who are interested in yoga, astrology, tarot, or whatever. It needs that. But it also needs analysis of infancy. It also needs attention to the dynamics of the therapist-client relationship. The cauldron for this is Jung and anti-Semitism. There are many ways to look at what he said and did. In the positive side of it, side of it, it's not positive, but there is a positive side of it. He was trying to produce a culturally attuned psychology. And in this sense, he was both way ahead of his time and and an inspiration to me and others. Which means that you can fashion a post Jungian approach to politics out of certain aspects of Jung's work. And that's what I've spent a great deal of my time doing. I mean, the last four books have all been about politics. There won't be any more. But I think it's there in the failed attempt to delineate what cultural difference does to and in the psyche. So those are the, those are the two reasons I stay. One is political and one is Clinical. And I'm 74 years old, and I have no intention of retiring from clinical work. I like it. And I think I self identify most as a therapist, actually. And I think the word therapist, just the ordinary, without Jungian, without psycho, without use of the word analysis in any form, this is a a good word. That's a good, simple, down to earth thing. Another thing to say, by the way, about the spectrum of therapies and where the Jungian work sits, is people come to therapy with problems, usually. And I think a lot of Jungians have a contemptuous attitude to people who come wanting to be fixed. I think it's completely understandable that people come to be fixed. Whether you can fix them remains to be seen. Whether you need to challenge the notion that there is a fix possible also Remains to be seen. But hey, let's be down to earth. Otherwise, what happens is everyone goes off to a cognitive behavioral therapist who is only too happy to solve your problems, but also sadly unlikely to probe the depths of yourself and of your possibilities and potentials. So I see the therapeutic task as being to address somebody's problems with them. And by the way, also to address the problems you, the therapist, encounter as you work with them. Having therapy with someone like me is quite demanding. So if I did have images, well, I do have an image on my website, which is of essentially of slave miners bringing stuff out of the ground in a famous uh, gold mine in Brazil. And they're going to deposit this stuff from the earth at the top where other people are going to see if there's any any gold in there and i thought that for me was the perfect image to describe what i do so there's no lakes no swans no shells no stones no beautiful images from india or what have you
0: so Jung's work has influenced many fields beyond psychology, uh, even including marketing. That's part of the reason for this podcast and for this season of the podcast is us at Free Range thinking about the ways in which Jung has come to influence us and how we relate to that. How can those of us influenced by Jung and his work make the most of his contributions without making some of the mistakes that he himself made? How do we use this work for the benefit of people moving ahead?
1: For me, it is in the social world, it is as part of Tikkun Olam, the repair and restoration of the world, that I see the deepest and most sincere and kindest possibilities for Jungian psychology and analysis. The fact that Jung's politics were sometimes so shit-awful, it's fascinating. And maybe it's as a response that my generation, the subsequent generations of post-Jungians, have become almost obsessed with politics. To go back to Ukraine, I would say there is more extraordinary work being done by Jungians in relation to the travails and suffering. In the Ukraine situation than any other school of psychotherapy. Of course, there were training bodies in Ukraine. By the way, there were training bodies in Russia too, which has made it difficult if you have an international perspective, because it's most likely that the Russian analysts are not in fact followers of Putin at all, be that as it may. We have become very political. How could this happen? I'm now going to become very academic. Heraclitus. The Greek philosopher, enantiodromia, enantiodromia, people can go and look it up, but it means a swing to the opposite. If you go a long way in one direction, somehow, by some kind of organic process that's difficult to understand, matters will move to the other end of the spectrum of possibilities. So an introverted, spiritualized, soulful approach to psychology went too far in that direction, perhaps, into alchemy and other esoteric areas. There has been an enantiodromia, a swing to a more activist and engaged posture. It's beautiful.
0: What would you like the future of therapy to look like?
1: I would like the future of therapy to be promiscuous by which I mean that even in the privacy and closeted cell of therapy, you need a lot of partners. We need partners within the field of psychotherapy with all the warring schools and factions, which many of your listeners may know about, but for example, The role of therapy thinking in relation to the climate crisis means that therapists have to find climate activists to talk with. We cannot stay alone. We cannot stay in the therapy ghetto. We have to go out there. My own interest is economic inequality and the way in which the 1% run the world and so on. I don't need to go on about that. There isn't time. But basically, you can't expect therapists to sort this out They may have a contribution to make, but they've got to find people to work with, which you can do, because quite a lot of people working in a field like economics know a little bit about psychology. They're often, they're very smart people, and they are interested in learning more. So we need to work with them. We need to find them. I mentioned earlier the problem of esotericism. I am all for exotericism. So therapy on its own, forget about it. Therapy in multiple unions with other disciplines and levels of knowledge, yes.
0: Any parting words, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with people?
1: Negativity isn't always negative.
0: Beautiful. All right, Dr. Andrew Samuels, thank you so much for coming on to the Free Ranger podcast here today. It's been a treat and a delight. We're happy to have had you.
1: We've had fun, haven't we?
0: I think so, yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with someone else who'd like it too. The Free Ranger is a production of Free Range Studios, a storytelling and innovation agency helping mission-driven organizations promote social good. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at freerange.com.